A sense of place is very important. Uh, a sense of place is being greater than just, oh, this is a pretty landscape here. There's story to that. There's, there's a deeper story which makes the landscape kind of come alive better. Those, those stories are culturally relevant to our tribes, the Salish, Calise Bay, and the Kasanka people. It's part of their history. Our sciences are embedded in those stories, and our connection to the landscape is embedded in those stories. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series, Life in the Land, in their entirety. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. In this episode, we're speaking with Tim Ryan, Salish cultural educator and department head for the Salish Kootenai College's Culture and Language Studies Department. We met up with him on the banks of the Flathead River, which goes through what is today the Flathead Reservation, home to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, which include the Salish and Kalispe, or Kalispel, and Kasanka, or Kootenai. And just to note, this conversation is featured in the Seely Swan episode of the Life in the Land film series as the Flathead Reservation is just over the Mission Mountains from the Swan Valley and Seely Lake region. And those places are also the ancestral homelands of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. The Flathead Reservation is in western Montana. This area has varied geography, with glacially formed valleys and prominent peaks, as well as rolling hills and prairie grasslands. Tim speaks about connections to this land, for himself, his ancestors, among others. Not only here, but in the Sealy Swan region and well beyond in the ancestral homelands of the tribes. He speaks to the sense of place, which all of humanity can learn from, and the ways he sees his communities weaving traditional ways into present day life to benefit the health of people and place. Tim begins by sharing about his work as a cultural educator and specifically his work with the Mission Mountain Youth Crew. Mike personal connection with the environment around me has led me to work with our youth and to work with our families in general on the reservation to help them make that connection uh, with their culture and with the environment around them and uh, with the community in general. Um, so uh, one influence in my life was a youth program that I was involved with. It was called the Young Adult Conservation Corps. And I enrolled in that for two, two years, and I was a crew leader within that, and um, that, that greatly influenced me, uh, gave me some, my self-confidence uh, to lead a crew, to be a part of a, a team, and to do it out in, in the wilderness, uh, do it out into these natural areas. Uh, a lot of our work was to take care of those areas too, um, pulling weeds, um, making opening up trails, other th impacts to our environment. And, and I see the value in that, and I see the value in my, in my own development of who I am and uh, how I look at the world. I want to share that and to show our, our families on the reservation that uh, you, can be, you can go there, you can be a part of that. You can immerse yourself in, in these environments that, uh, that contain all this wealth of energy, these, these beings around us, the trees, the flowers, the rocks, the insects, the rain, they're, they're all alive. They have, they have energy to them. I mean, if, if, if you look at this rock, it's, it's, got, 
it's got neutrons and protons that are just moving, they're vibrating within there. We can't feel that, but maybe we don't have the sensitivity to feel that, or, or maybe we do. Um, and that's, that's embedded in the indigenous worldviews that we're all part of, uh, of this greater cosmos of, of beings and energy that's around us. You can go to that. You can, you can find your medicine, your own sumesh within these, these beings. It, it's what I call uh, the new vision quest uh, for our youth is to just get out in the woods, just get out in these natural areas and open yourself up to these energies around you, these beings, and find yourself within that. Every time that you do bring yourself out to these places, you learn something from that. There's, there's a transfer of energy between you and these beings around you. And that, uh, that is your basic uh, vision quest. That's how the vision quest was part of our life and it still is part of our life. It's just transformed a little bit different these days. I, um, I was approached by my niece who was part of the National Forest Foundation. And uh, she uh, works, she, she talked about a project. She asked me what, what kind of project uh, would be ideal for our reservation family and our reservation youth. We came up with this program that was somewhat modeled after Youth Conservation Corps. We put together an application form and we got six high school students from various communities on the reservation, two college students from the Salish Kootenai College, and myself to run the program. And so then we had eight reservation youth involved with this program for seven weeks during the summer months and uh, we did forest restoration work, everything from uh, recreational sites, opening trails up, uh, cleaning campgrounds, uh, to even uh, banding birds, uh, doing some snorkeling uh, to do fish surveys. Uh, that was in the Swan Valley. Uh, we also opened up a corridor on the National Bison Range that was, had a lot of downfall from the high winds, a lot of trees that were blown down and branches. Uh, we cleared a, a corridor, a trail for the bison to move through to go to another uh, pasture uh, on the bison range to graze. In that sense, we were caring for our animals, uh, we're caring for our plants. We pulled a lot of weeds in these areas that were infesting natural areas, and, we, and, and so then we were uh, helping our native plants to repopulate those areas where the noxious weeds were. We also did not only natural resource management uh, work, but we also did um, cultural resource management work too, where we were looking at interpretive trails and, and uh, looking at the interpretive trails associated with culturally scarred trees or culturally modified trees. Uh, these were trees that were modified by my ancestors. Uh, the bark was off, taken off the trees and the cambium was extracted from the bark and used as food. And that was a traditional seasonal, um, uh, spring seasonal um, activity within our homelands, uh, the Swan Valley, Flathead, Flathead Valley, and most of Western Montana. All, a lot of those scar culturally modified trees were modified by my ancestors. And so we did some, um, some mapping of those, of those culturally modified trees and mapping of some of the trails, uh, historic trails that were used by my ancestors that we helped to open up and, and to um, brush out. And the youth crew 
had an opportunity to actually walk and hike the same footsteps and same trails as my ancestors did. And so then heritage education was part of that program of which I was able to convey to them the history and the use, traditional uses of these areas and the seasonal rounds, movements of the tribes, uh, of our tribes and where they camped, what were they doing there, what kind of resources were they incorporating in, at these places. And um, I, I was, I'm hoping, well, not hoping, I know that these uh, that this tribal youth uh, did connect with that, with the stories that I did tell and, uh, and their comments afterwards and, and how they did, uh, how some of them even felt like, he even said that they felt their ancestors on the trail. <laughs> so um, that's, that's that connection, that deep connect, cultural connection and that uh, environmental connection that um, uh, we need these, our youth to embrace and to be a part of. Um, their culture is not just embedded in their in their their home or their school, their community, but it's embedded in the environment around us. It's uh, the, the 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 evidence that that's there that our, our ancestors that left um, these beautiful um, places that they camped and and the and the artifacts that were left there that that need to stay there. Those artifacts, as my elders have told me, that my um, are spirit ancestors are still using those those tools out there and if you take that from the landscape then you're taking their tools that they use to to make for their season around well they're still moving in that spiritual world around us and still part of our life and still you know um, when I when I come out here I, I, I invite my ancestors to be with me so that they can help guide and protect me and to be a part of my life um, as they as they always have been um, and that, that's true in, some, in, in things that um, uh, I make. I make uh, fish traps. I make a lot of different cultural material items of our tribes. And in some ways I approach it. I, I don't know how to make it. I look at it. I, I think about it. I, I know how all these materials work together, bone, uh, rawhide, uh, uh, wood, things like that. And once you put it together, I'm looking at it. And I'm, I made this fish trap. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, how did I do that? <laughs> I, I, I wasn't taught how to do it, but I felt that my spirit ancestors were behind me and helping me in that, in that respect. And that's what I want, would like to see our tribal membership uh, cultivate that energy and that, um, that connection. Like I said, not only to the environment, but also to their spirit ancestors who are around them um, always and such, and that you can call on them and ask them to help with, with, uh, with whatever you need in this life and so that's that's part of that personal sumesh or that medicine that needs to be cultivated and i and and i hope that uh, through my experiences and through my uh, my journeys through with my elders and my family and my friends and other individuals that were important in my life that i can give convey that to them and that they can realize that and and find that within their journey and in their life the the mission mountain youth uh, crew uh, was formed not only to just to make that connection with the environment and the community, but also to make the connection to their careers, their future careers, and what they may aspire to. And in traditional ways of teaching and raising our young, it was identifying in them their innate abilities. Where do they feel confident in themselves and their abilities, and, and how can we foster that? How can we make them a part of our community? 
uh, that um, honors them, that helps them feel that they are someone important in, in this community, not only in the family, but also the community. Um, and, and the greater outside world. We're not, we're, we're, we, are, we are in the dominant Western, um, Western society. Um, it, we're just not, on, we're, not, we're not enclosed on this reservation. There's the bigger world around us that uh, we also, our tribal membership needs to be, feel comfortable and fluent to be able to move within all worlds that, that's a part of their world. The Mission Mountain Youth Crew is put on through a partnership of various entities. Tim speaks to these partnerships and the entities that come together to make this important program a reality. And so then realizing that, uh, of course, we need money to do this project. We need uh, individuals to identify what kind of uh, projects are out there. Um, plus, we need these career individuals to, to interact with, this youth, with the youth to um, show them certain career pathways that they may be interested in. So the National Forest Foundation, um, working with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, working with the Salish Kootenai College, and then working with the Flathead National Forest. The, the, the other partners were the, 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 the parents, I guess, that, that encouraged their kids to enroll in this program. And do you mind sharing a specific moment or something with one of the members of that program, the youth in that program? Maybe you saw, you saw empowerment happening with them. Or if there's some specific moment that might stand out to you of, of seeing that and being like, yes, this is what it's about. Yeah, I think one, one area I think that was, you know, I, I felt that we're, all the partners were doing their job was when uh, one of our male participants, a uh, high school uh, student, we had a fisheries biologist doing uh, um, a presentation and he walked away from that saying, wow, I want to be a fisheries biologist. I think that's really cool. Wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start studying right now. Who do I talk to and all this stuff? So gave him some names. Next week we went and here we are. We're, we're working with a hydrologist and uh, he's doing stream, stream reconstruction on, on the reservation here on, on Mission Creek. And he's talking about all the stuff that he needs to do to engineer this and to do that and put the native plants here and uh, get the stream meandering back in its natural corridor and stuff like that. That same kid after that day says, wow, I want to be a hydrologist now. I know I really want to do that now. I think that's really cool to be able to, you know. So uh, it was like, wow, he was, he was being inspired by all those professions, which is a good thing. Um, so I think you know our our resource professionals were doing a really good job too, in in talking to that student about their profession and getting them excited about it. And so um, I, I think that was that was a moment where uh, he couldn't decide what he wanted to do. <laughs> Tim speaks about the homelands of the Salish people, which expanded over much of the Northwest for thousands of years. He also gets into specifics to the connections to the Sealy Lake and Swan Valley region. Presently, right now, we're, we're on the, what you'd call the Flathead Reservation, um, which is only a fraction of our homelands, um, also sometimes called Aboriginal territories. But during the, during the mid-1800s, when um, the Euro-American uh, movements and settlement into uh, the West, and, and especially into Montana, uh, there was a push to uh, uh, kind of stop that seasonal movement 
of our tribes that they continued for tens of, tens of thousands of years on this landscape because of that conflict of, of our tribes moving to their custom places along um, in their homelands to, to hunt, fish, collect, and to be a, um, to continue their seasonal rounds. So uh, reservations were, were, were formed and um, expected that the tribes would just be there on the reservations. So we ceded many uh, millions, millions of acres of, of our homelands to the federal government for the express use of this flathead of the reservation here. Uh, other areas uh, that are important to us was the Big Hole area, Helena, the Three Forks, um, down in the south area, the Yellowstone area, and then going up into Great Falls and the Rocky Mountain Front, all the way over into um, Washington and Idaho, and on up into Canada as basically a general uh, a, a look at our homelands in general. Um, so large expanse of areas. And our, our seasonal rounds and movements interacted with all those different areas and the different ecosystems that, the, that our ancestors moved through, the traditional ecological knowledge that was so important that they embodied in, in, in their mind and their, in their, in their psyche about how to, how, how to live off this land, how to exist, and how to move through uh, these areas. So uh, if we look at here, the Flathead Valley, um, what's unique here is the Flathead Lake and the rivers, the main uh, Flathead River, Clark Fork River. Um, those areas were really essential for, of course, fishing. Um, one, of, one, one reason why uh, our water rights was so strong and, how, and, and that we won our suit against um, ARCO was because of our use of fish. Um, we could, it, was, it was a steady supply of protein that we needed. If the, the other big game got scarce, we could always go to fishing. We were fishing all the time. Uh, wintering grounds, other grounds that we moved through fishing was, was really that important. So um, that brings us to the bull trout and, and the cutthroat. Trout is the two main uh, fish that, we, um, that our ancestors lived off of. And um, as we go up, uh, so Missoula being called Inthla Eye, being place of bull trout, and as, as you move east of there uh, the, for the, through the Blackfoot uh, river drainage that was a major fisheries for the bull trout. That carried us out through uh, the east through the Blackfoot River corridor, but then we took an immediate left, I guess you'd say north, uh, into the Swan Valley. And the Swan Valley is a little higher elevation uh, than, than the surrounding valleys, which uh, made it a bit more cooler, a little more damper. But uh, my elders have talked talk, talk to me about it when we when I've interviewed my elders about traditional uses of certain areas in Aboriginal territory. They talked about the Swan Valley as being really important for big game, bear, elk, and such. Uh, deer could be found just about any, everywhere, but uh, the, the large groups of elk and, and, and such that were up in there were really important. And so um, that getting getting over there in across the missions from here, if your wintering ground was in the Flathead Valley here, uh, you would go straight across the mountains, the Mission Mountains, and uh, you'd arrive, arrive into the Swan Valley there where uh, the elders talked about big game and berry, berries. And one of the main uh, berries, of course, was huckleberries in that area. Uh, and there's a lot of um, culturally modified trees back there too that the bark was taken off for the use of um, uh, food, for cambium. Uh, there's also other 
uses of the tree bark in those areas. There was large stands of white pine that grow really long, really um, straight and tall. And now we don't have as many of the white pines because they were used as foam, uh, power poles and things like that because of their uniformity of growth. Um, but we use the bark off of those white pine for canoes. Sometimes people get mixed up between the white bark pine and the white pine trees. The white bark pine are the higher elevation pine tree that uh, the pine nuts are used uh, predominantly for food and such. So that, they're a higher elevation. But some of those uh, other uh, trees uh, in the Swan Valley were, were really important because of the old growth in the Swan Valley too. There was a considerable amount of old growth ponderosa and the uh, spruces, Engelmann spruce, which is another uh, tree bark that was used for um, canoe making. Uh, the bark was stripped off and then that became the outer part of the canoe. Uh, so spruce and the white pine that was back in there were really important um, for that. The uh, old growth forest, that is a product of my ancestors. There's all the old growth forests within um, in our homelands because of the practice annual practice of, of fire and uh, that's exhibited through the Girard uh, old growth uh, large tree stand there and just uh, west of uh, the town of Sealy Lake. There's the largest western larch in Montana is there and they did a study of uh, the um, of the tree ring study that they did they found that there was a a regime of fires that went through there every 25 years and they said this is not a natural fire regime that came through this area that the indigenous peoples had to have lit the fires every 25 years to this area and so talking with my one of my elders about that situation he, he tend to believe that that was because of uh, management of the huckleberries because the huckleberries need uh, a regeneration and he said they need a certain amount of shade and a certain amount of sunlight to grow and so then the, uh, every 25 years they would open up the, the, the canopy a bit more and then reinvigorate the, the uh, huckleberries by f the use of fire. If, if that's not somewhat of an agricultural practice, I'm not sure, you know, but it, you know, us, uh, our, our, my ancestors being considered hunter-gatherers and not agrarian, uh, there might be a, a fine line between that as, as to our management of our, of, of our food sources out there that were within that place, fire was the main management tool for that, that helped to regenerate that. Our tribes are still continuing to practice a lot of their seasonal round movements. Um, and those movements are, are hunting, fishing, berry gathering, uh, root digging and such. And so these, uh, our, our homelands um, still have uh, a fair amount of those resources and we still move upon within our homelands. And a lot of our trails to get uh, to other resources, the bison on the Rocky Mountain front, uh, uh, camas areas, uh, certain camas areas, bitterroot areas that are really important staples, uh, food staples for our tribes, and fishing areas. We had, we had different various camps out there, fishing camps, we had berry camps, we had hunting camps, uh, areas that we would, we would spend a week or two or more or less to harvest those foods, to, to uh, process those foods, and not only foods, but medicines, and, and uh, connecting with these different ecosystems that hold these different resources, plants, animal, um, and mineral. We've got uh, areas out there that are really important along our seasonal rounds that we had uh, mineral uh, stone tool uh, materials to make our stone tools for arrowheads and scrapers. Oh, there's a nice falcon moving through here right now. Oh, wow.
Yeah. You know, that's, but uh, my elders would, would, would talk quite a bit about, you know, if uh, when, when, when birds come close to you or animals come close to you that you, you, should, you should stop and listen and, and uh, they, they could be conveying something to you, they could be talking to you. These natural environments, these, these, these forested, these grasslands, these, all these areas, uh, that, that was where the elders say we acquired our sumesh, meaning our, our personal medicine that we would carry through our, our, our life with. That uh, these, these animals are inanimate objects of, of rocks and rain and um, uh, all, all these beings, they communicate to you. That's, the elders say we learned from them at that reciprocity was very important um, to consider. And so then we, we honored all the, these beings as we moved through our seasonal round and we connected with them through different ecosystems. Um, and so then if you imagine us traveling through the mountains here, the Mission Mountains, all the way to the Rocky Mountain front, where you got the Missouri River, the Muscle Shell, the Yellowstone Rivers, all those areas, we have place names out there. And those place names, uh, they all just say, if there's a place name out there, then, then that's part of our homelands, that's part of our areas that we, there was important resources that we were, we were going to. And, and I've been talking about resources and, and, and foods, medicines, and construction materials like bow materials and, and, and stone lithic materials to make your stone tools from, uh, but also talking about the human connection. There was, there was families that we had, bands of our Salish, Kalispe, and Kasanka people, bands that were distributed all through our homeland. And essentially, there was, that, that was where they, where they wintered. And then they would move out through there in huge circles across the landscape and homelands, whether they're going into Washington, Idaho, or going up into Canada, going into eastern Montana, Wyoming. All those areas were extended areas of their homeland. And it encompassed many different ecosystems. And to have the, very, the many data sets in your mind to be able to identify those plants and to be able to be there at the time of maturity and at the right time to, uh, to harvest and, and to collect and to process those resources took a great amount of indigenous sciences to, to make that happen. And it was developed over uh, thousands of years, maybe ten tens of thousands of years of knowing a place, of being part of this place and uh, continuing to, to tell the stories and those stories still being created for generation upon generation that, that, uh, that creates these stories that, it, it, that helps you to feel and to be a part of this landscape to where you can start defining where you are in this cosmos of, 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 of being, of being here and your relationship to all that's around you um, that, re that, that relationship was really important because in, in, a, in, in, a, in a community, in a tribal unit, everyone was valued for, for what they contributed as a team, as, as a group, as a community to move forward uh, generation upon generation, and, and here we are. <laughs> we're, we're, we're making it, you know, and, and um, where are we going in the future? That's, that's, a, you know, that's a huge question. Tim speaks to the concept of a sense of place and how the stories of the Salish people shape this concept. A sense of place 
is very important and is part of my teachings of my students and such and, and basically the general public. Uh, a sense of place as being greater than just, oh, this is, a pretty, this is a pretty landscape here. Wow, nice. Well, there's story to that. There's, there's a deeper story which makes the landscape kind of come alive better. And within those stories, there's, there's culture. Those, those, those stories are culturally relevant to our tribes, the Salish, Calise Bay, and the Kasanka people. It's part of their history. It's part of their life lessons that is told over and over seasonally. And uh, our, our, our sciences are embedded in those stories. Our spirituality and our connection to the landscape are embedded in those stories. And so through a lot of my experiential uh, learning events, this is, I try to create a classrooms out of our, uh, our traditional homelands, which is uh, a greater part of the Northwest. And uh, the many stories that are out there, uh, they, they're interpreted too by our tribes. Uh, their, their indigenous sciences are embedded in the stories. And one of those stories is uh, Squillaus to Keps. And essentially what it is, it's Beaver's Hill. And uh, the last, it refers to the last ice age uh, that uh, came through this area here. There was a number of two or three ice ages that, that they've recorded through the flathead in the Mission Valleys through this area. Well, this last one had a wall of ice right at Polson Hill. Polson Hill became the terminal moraine of the last ice age coming through here and created a dam that, that, that then created the Flathead Lake area uh, back behind us. You, you can't see it, but it's back behind the mountains there. That lake was formed by beaver, white beaver, um, one of our uh, players within our stories. Uh, essentially, beaver pushed up the landscape created the dam, which is the terminal moraine that we have now at Polson Hill, and, uh, and then the Wild Horse Island, the largest island on Flathead Lake, is his lodge. And so that represents his lodge. So Beaver created his home here. And he created it with the same sciences as, as a glacier does. And so then our, our, my ancestors were looking at the landscape and, and they just, they deciphered, well, something pushed that landscape up and created this dam here, and then the water filled up back here. So the sciences are there. The interpretation is a bit different. An elder told me, too, is that the beavers, when they usually create their dam, they put a check valve in their dam so it doesn't blow out the whole dam, that there's a weak area that if it does get too much water, too much pressure built up behind that dam, that it'll, that it'll, it'll come out some other part of the, the dam and it won't destroy the whole dam itself. So the elders were talking about the beaver putting in this check valve, which is this part right here where the, where the dam is, that was the check valve. Basically, it was a rock, a wall of rock that weakened by the pressure of the lake, and it started pushing the water, and then, it, and then soon the lake, the, the river, or the lake was being drained out, as we presently see here, the, the Flathead River here. Geologically, the lake used to drain up north by Elmo, up, up farther north, north part of the north, uh, western part of the lake up there. So it's, it's very interesting that even the stories, even the, the way that uh, uh, dams are created and how the water eventually started flowing through this route right here and creating this, this environment. The lake drained out a successive amount of 
times through uh, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, but it would drain very fast when that dam would break, and so the water would flow out. And that fast flowing water probably created some of the river channels that we see today too. But to interpret the landscape within that story is, is, is pretty amazing. And um, there is a kiosk, one of, one of, I take my students to a pull-off on top of the Polson Hill or Beavers Hill there. Uh, there's a kiosk there that exhibit the indigenous worldviews. It exhibits what my ancestors interpreted the landscape at, and then it exhibits a, a historic, more contemporary worldview that's associated with the building of the highway through the, through the um, reservation. The highway was proposed, a four-lane, super four-lane highway was proposed through the reservation, and uh, the tribe said we wanted a highway that would fit in the landscape better, would have other, other considerations like the wild animals that cross, uh, the, the, the crossing, animal crossings that we've installed on the highway um, ha has gotten rave review from the public and, and the safety issues of animals crossing and hitting vehicles and stuff like that, that's gone down greatly. As Tim mentions here, when the state proposed widening the stretch of Highway 93, which goes through the Flathead Reservation, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes said it could only be done if the design accommodated for the wildlife that required frequent movement across the valley for the resources they needed for their survival. The highway cut directly through these wildlife migration corridors. The tribes guided and led designs that, quote, looked at the highway as a visitor, and in the early 2000s, over 40 fish and wildlife passages were incorporated into the highway expansion, making it the largest network of wildlife corridors in the world at the time. Now, with decades of data and research that CSKT's wildlife biologists and ecologists have collected, that can guide similar infrastructure in neighboring corridors and beyond. Um, but that, that indigenous worldview of other beings, the respect for other beings, for the animals, that cross the highway and such. And so we have uh, endangered species that are crossing that highway. And so then we're, we're helping them to uh, prosper and to be able to cross in, in, in some of their connected environments and, and ecosystems that they're a part of. Uh, they, they still need uh, that connectivity of their environment and their, their resources that they can get access to. So um, it, it's a great place. I take my students there and it exhibits a, an ancestral uh, indigenous worldview and a contemporary worldview of today. Tim speaks about the specific area where we're standing, on a high sagebrush prairie, which gives way to steep cliffs to where the Flathead River carves out the land far below. He touches on historical connections of his ancestors and connecting to this landscape today. If, if you think about the seasonal rounds of our tribes, starting out in, the, in, in their wintering grounds here in the valleys, spring the buttercup comes up that's a cultural bioindicator of spring coming and the better weather to come so that there's a whole month uh, that's named um, after the buttercup for the spring time and the coming of the good weather and and uh, food sources and such that's a, that indicator also that the cutthroat trout are about to spawn and that you better get your fishing gear ready and and start watching the rivers because the cutthroat are, are about to come up. So then these cultural bioindicators are really important. They indicate what you should be doing or getting prepared to do to make your uh, seasonal round successful 
uh, because there's sometimes a short window for these resources to harvest the, these resources, whether it's fish, animal, plant, resources that, that uh, become mature at a certain time. Your, your connection to the landscape is constant. It's, it's, you're always observing what's around you and what's happening. So this valley here being a wintering ground and the trail system that came through here, rivers are, are considered trails, whether you float them or, or you're hiking along them because of, because of these riparian areas have a, have a great amount of resources that not only humans interact with, but 95% of all the animals uh, within this valley depend on these, these riverine um, riparian areas that have has a, a great diversity of, of resources within them. So this area where we're at is is pretty much along a trail route and so then this high ground here <clears throat> and the lookout that we do see the river flowing down to the southwest there um, this high point here is is conducive to a lookout and I believe through our archaeological work we I remember we did find some chips and flakes from stone tool making and usually that's from an individual uh, watching over usually the campsites that would have been down there on the on the Flathead River down in that area there there'd be someone up here looking over and watching over and seeing who's moving through this these areas uh, to to avoid any kind of conflict with other tribes or other groups of people um, or to welcome other tribes that, uh, that are part of family and a part of uh, that connection with community, uh, with other people, other groups of bands that are moving through this area, continue to, to move on to their seasonal movements too. So those individuals that are up here on the lookout, they're usually working on their stone tools and they're usually making their arrowheads and scrapers and, and knife blades up on these high ends. And so and today we have a lot of people who come out here and <clears throat> recreate. And, um, earlier before we came out here, there was a couple of people here with their dogs and enjoying this landscape and making their personal connection to this place. Um, just as my ancestors were, it may have been uh, for different reasons, um, but uh, still there was, uh, even our elders had a sense of beauty and talking about these areas. Whenever I did a fair amount of um, um, interviews with elders, they requested to come to places like this that, that helped them to find and to feel the grandeur of this, of this wonderful landscape and to think about it and then to tell the stories about this landscape and feeling the beauty and the beings that are around us, all of the grass, the insects, the, the rain, the rocks, all those are those those inanimate objects um, that aren't considered to be alive or conscious. That indigenous worldview is embodied with a lot of our tribal members still and our elders, and um, that is uh, those different worldviews that we uh, contend with in this in this world, especially on the reservation that was opened up to settlement by non-tribal individuals in the early 1900s. It was a clash of worldviews that was part of that. The federal government and, and their perspective of wanting to assimilate our tribes, our, our, our Indian people, into being farmers and ranchers. That was that was just wasn't the worldview that we had at that time. So when the reservation was opened up for settlement, a lot of our tribal members chose spots that were connected with the mountains and the and the lowlands. But then a lot of the non-tribal uh, settlers that came in, they chose these areas in the middle of the valleys and so some of our land status maps kind of show that and so then that 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 just shows the indigenous worldviews of our of our people wanting to still connect with those resources within the mountain areas and within the valley areas uh, similar to their usual seasonal rounds 
and um, so just a little bit of difference there in, in uh, indigenous versus Western worldviews. Tim speaks with me about the concept of worldview and how we can embed these connections with the environment we are a part of into every element of our societal interactions. Working with my students a lot, I, I, I try to help them to understand the indigenous worldview. Um, and, uh, they, but any kind of worldviews in general, um, realizing that they have a worldview. I, I know that when I was younger, it wasn't until I got into college that I realized, oh, worldviews, oh, that's what kind of governs us and our decisions, what we do in our careers and things. And the important thing is, is realizing your own worldview and where do you stand within the cosmos of the greater uh, humanity and, and, and realm of, of, our, of, of our existence. With that um, worldview is the consideration of your family, community, and the world in general and your effects on it. Um, and if we can truly embody that belief and that feeling that we are part of everything around us, that, uh, that we would start thinking about more seriously about, about polluting our, our, our lands, about, about uh, mismanaging our lands, um, our endangered species, animals that are disappearing from the earth because of our effect, the climate change, and how that's affecting everything and everyone on this earth, how it affects us culturally. Um, those traditional plants may not be coming up at this right time. Those traditional plants might not be, uh, be there when we need that for medicines and things like that for, um, for, to support our culture. If we have that indigenous mindset of that we're all part of this and we're all responsible for uh, what we do in our everyday life, that we affect other beings too, not just our family and our community, but the greater world uh, in general, that uh, um, we, we need to be conscious of that. That ripple effect, that if we do have greater respect for the, the plants and animals, and minerals and things like that and climate they're all part of this that uh, we'd probably be in better shape that we wouldn't be um, our extractive industries pollution we wouldn't be doing that as much i think i think we'd be on a better foot and that uh, we would be moving uh, forward and and not backward as, as we are we're, we're the apex species on this earth and usually it's considered the apex species within a uh, you know, within a, an ecosystem like uh, the wolf keeps the forest healthy. But w are we doing that? No, we're the apex species and we're, 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 we're spinning out of control with it. I asked Tim about place names, the names that have existed for thousands of years, which tribes have for specific areas on the landscape. Most Western names for places, streets, rivers, towns, are people-centric, whereas Salish place names are connected to natural elements of that location. If you've seen the signs for place names or town names now erected on the Flathead Reservation, you'll see both the Western English name as well as the Salish place name written. They could be descriptive of so what kind of resources are there, like place of cho choke cherry or place of bitterroot. 
um, the, those place names are, are self-evident of what's there and how important it was because it identified a certain resource that our tribes used uh, seasonally. And so then those place names uh, are, are stories. They, they can be very simple, descriptive um, um, identifiers of that place, or they can ha contain a whole story within itself, like the um, Squillaus to Kepps, Beaver's Hill. The place name for the Flathead um, uh, Lake is very descriptive. Place of the broad water, very open, big, wide open water. And um, I, I, I do not remember the, um, the pronunciation of that. I'm, I'm working on my Salish language. Uh, I wasn't raised with the Salish language, but it's something that I've uh, taken on myself through the years. And um, I'm still um, learning from uh, learning my place names and learning my Salish language which there's, a, there's many stories in the language that they've been translated and such, but, to, but as elders tell me, if I can read them within the language, that story can take on um, uh, a, a different life to it and a different presence and, and a different uh, effect to ourselves within the language. So it is, it is important to, to learn the language and such. And so uh, it is sad that a lot of these place names are gone from the landscape that, uh, you know, if you go to Hawaii, there's a lot of those lands, those place names are still in place on the landscape. And so we've made that effort. Uh, one of them is the right there where the University of Montana is and the Rattlesnake Creek. That place is identified as, uh, one, as a wintering ground for our Salish, Calise Bay people. Uh, it's called Inflaai, meaning place of bull trout. And then you go to the, to the Bonner where the dam was taken out. That was another place of bull trout. Inflaichtum is what the name of that place was, which meaning place of large bull trout. And then that place name, now with the removal of that dam, that place name comes alive. And it made our, our elders and our tribal membership very happy that the bull trout could then pass through that area. Uh, the bull, uh, Blackfoot River was a major uh, bull trout fisheries um, for our tribes, just as the Rattlesnake Creek was in that area. And so now, uh, whenever I go through there, I think about that place name, and I think about that now that that dam is removed, that that place name can then come alive because the bull trout can now pass through those areas. Tim is also a skilled craftsman of traditional Salish tools, and he incorporates this into his educational programs a great deal. Bridging a lot of these different um, Western concepts too with uh, the indigenous concepts and stuff like that is, is part of that bridge that uh, getting um, our youth and our tribal membership into working with traditional ways every day. I've, uh, um, I'm working on a, uh, a rawhide power flash, put my computer in and go, it, it'll be a briefcase when I go to school and back <laughs> for my classes. And so that's one way I, why I want to teach how to make a traditional digging stick is because I want that young person to use a traditional digging stick next time they dig their bitterroot and not a more modern heavy metal welded one together that's okay for sure but whenever they've used a traditional item it it sparked something inside them too a connection also and when they've made a traditional item like that and then they go out and use it that's that connection uh, that they're feeling too that uh, they're they're participating in their in their culture. They're being that their culture is a part of their life, and um, that's uh, another avenue that we're working on with our um, with our students too, is to actually using some of these items that they make, 
and uh, going back to that connection with with their spiritual connection with this environment through making of those items, embracing these these materials, the rocks, and thinking the way their ancestors think. When I come on this landscape with all these rocks, I'm looking at them and think, wow, there's some good rocks to make some tools out of here. You know, nice round spherical rocks like this, like this could be a, a fish net weight. I could I could put a groove in there and make a net weight that, a net that could go across there and this net weight would hold the net open for the fish to go into. So that part part of it is kind of putting yourself back into what your how your how your ancestors thought about the landscape and the perspectives and such. And that's a lot of lot, a lot of fun to explore that too. So getting getting our tribal membership and our youth to think that way. Thank you so much to Tim Ryan. It was such an honor for you to share this insight. You can find out more about the Mission Mountain Youth Crew at nationalforests.org and resources on the Salish Kalispe Culture Committee at csktsalish.org and the Kootenai Cultural Committee at csktribes.org. Find all of these links in this episode's show notes. Thank you to Andy Jostin for assistance in the field with this episode and to Peyton Butler for editing assistance. We encourage you to check out the site lifeintheland.org to find the film featuring these voices on the Sealy Swan, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Please reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. Thank you all for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Kalispell, Kootenai, and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet for all. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible completely through donation support. We'd like to thank the following generous supporters, Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Minelands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winna Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Park Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Wooded, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, the Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. You can support future Life in the Land work with a tax-deductible contribution at lifeintheland.org.